Talk, the regular podcast from eSharp magazine. Go to eSharp.eu for free access to all the podcasts to date. My name is Paul Adamson and I'm in conversation with Nick Clegg. Nick Clegg is the former Deputy Prime Minister of the UK and former leader of the Liberal Democrats. Nick, it's Thursday the 12th of October and this is the morning when your new book is published, How to Stop Brexit, Brackets and Make Britain Great Again, Brackets. In a nutshell, how can we stop Brexit if we want to stop Brexit? So I don't think there is any way uh, out of this cul-de-sac in which we all find ourselves now in, this Brexit cul-de-sac. Um, and by the way, I say it's a cul-de-sac. It's a cul-de-sac even for those people who advocated Brexit in the first place, because it's not remotely turning out how they ha hoped either. So I think everybody recognises we're in a mess now. And I don't think there's any way that you can back out of that cul-de-sac and sort of pause for breath and think again about how we should proceed, which does not start with MPs in Parliament in almost exactly a year's time when they've been promised a vote on whatever deal Theresa May and David Davis cobbled together with Michel Barnier. Uh, it, 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 it's indispensable that MPs at that point say to the government, no, I'm sorry, we're not going to endorse this because it doesn't in any way measure up to the promises that you made to, the, to our constituents. And that will, of course, then provoke uh, turbulence, and rupture, and drama, and so on. But I, I think that is the indispensable first step in trying to uh, sort of put Humpty Dumpty back together again to start trying to think more rationally about the relationship between the United Kingdom and the EU. So a lot of the book is written about how uh, ordinary folk can try and influence their MPs, particularly their Conservative and Labour MPs, to put country before party in that crunch vote in a year's time. So a lot of the pressure, therefore, or the strategy is between now and this time next year, say October yeah. 2018, uh, pressure is, is placed on MPs and House of Commons to force this vote with the, uh, with the government on the deal. Isn't there the, the, a danger or a weakness of that argument that the government will say, actually, well, we got the best deal we could possibly can. If you don't endorse it, uh, fellow MPs and House of Commons, uh, we can't go back to the negotiating table because we've been given the best deal. Therefore, it's take it or leave it. No, well, that's, you're quite right. That's what Theresa May is saying. She's saying absurdly in my view, for reasons I'll explain, she is saying MPs are only allowed to have a vote either between whatever she's offered up to them or chaos. Um, but that's a nonsense because MPs can, can vote against that deal with a clear conscience because we won't have legally left the European Union by next October. We don't legally leave under the terms of Article 50 until the end of March 2019. And I'm absolutely convinced, by the way, even doubly convinced after some uh, meetings I've had this morning with senior uh, folk uh, in, uh, in the European institutions, that if that were to happen, the rest of the European Union would, would in effect try and, what they call in the Brussels jargon, you know this as well as I do, stop the clock, You'd just push okay. the pause button. Because then we would be in a new political reality. We would have had a, a basically an impasse between a, a British government, a Brexit government, which has failed to deliver on the legitimate expectations which they raised amongst the British people, 50 million quid for the NHS, mm. um, a VAT cut, a, a utopia, a panacea of new trade agreements and so on and so forth, they would have failed to deliver that and Parliament would have not consented to the, uh, the, the very suboptimal deal that the government would have cobbled together instead. So there'd be a new reality and I'm absolutely convinced that the EU would then say, okay, well, in that case we should press the pause button. Uh, rather than simply march sort of robotically towards this cliff edge date at the end of March 2019. That's a pretty important point I've made. So yeah. it's the first time I've heard that said because everybody's saying, of course, whether you're a leave or remain or just made the agnostic, that 
time is ticking by and we haven't got time to waste and uh, and as, as Barney says we need a deal by this time next year in order to give us everybody six months to ratify and get a vote with the council the European Parliament and etc etc so uh, and therefore the, the two-year timetable of article 50 is immutable but you're saying in effect the stop the clock would actually address that problem of course uh, look the, the idea that article 50 is some sort of conveyor belt which can never be is a nonsense. Uh, the, the, the author, as you know, Lord Kerr of, uh, of, of Article 50 itself, has always said that if the applicant country that had, that had triggered Article 50, in this case the United Kingdom, basically was no longer in a position to see it through or chose not to see it through, then of course it could be, it could be paused. Um, and and, and I, 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 I'm totally... I mean, why would the rest of the EU do anything else? Why would the rest of the EU then say, I'm sorry... Um, we're now going to force you out, even though you're actually developing doubts about whether you want to be forced out in the first place. Of course they're not going to do that. Of course they're not going to do that. And, and I'm very convinced, having had numerous conversations with um, European politicians, European officials and others, is that that is what would happen. And it's important for that to remember, because one of the great myths that the Brexiteers very skillfully, very successfully put about, and this was one of the motivations for me writing the book, was to dispel some of these myths, uh, you know, the myth you know, for, for instance, that uh, um, you know, once you've taken a decision by a referendum, you never have a right ever for the rest of time to sort of revisit the facts around that referendum. Of course, that's a nonsense. Yeah. But equally, the myth that somehow Article 50 is a, an unstoppable conveyor belt is just that. It is a myth. It seems to me beyond um, contention that if the UK Parliament were not to give its consent mm. in a representative democracy mm. to the deal cobbled together by the government, then the rest of the EU is not, would not, is not going to play legalistic tricks. It would then accept that circumstances have changed quite, uh, quite significantly. And I, I know, having been told this on numerous occasions, that we then um, happily seek um, a decision such that, in, in effect, the, the, the Article 50 process is, is, is paused. And, and, and in that great, wonderful euphemism, time is suddenly suspended. Of course that would be the reality of things. And I, I think it's very important in a, in a free democracy that people feel uh, in Britain that they retain the freedom to change their minds. I mean, what did yeah. John Maynard Keynes say? You know, when the, when the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do, sir? But by the way, someone else who is worth quoting, and actually I quote him in the, in the sort of front page of my uh, pamphlet, is none other than David Davis, who once said very wisely, in my view, he said, a democracy that can't change its mind ceases to be a democracy. And of course he's right. Um, you know, it's only, it's only in the sort of Old Testament orthodoxy of the extreme Brexiteers that the decision on the 23rd of June, even if, even if all the commitments that were made to the British people then are not fulfilled, somehow still gives the government the mandate to carry on regardless. I mean, that is a nonsense. That is a, that is a democratically aberrant argument. And so, oddly enough, my book, or booklet, it can be read very quickly, um, uh, is as much about democracy as it is about the European Union. It's much, it's much more about the issues of accountability and democracy. Because I'm, amongst many other things, I'm very distressed at this idea that this venerable old democracy, the United Kingdom, should now basically be told that all principles of accountability and all principles of representative democracy have been demolished overnight by the 23rd of June. That is a nonsense. Of course that's not true. Right, let's go back then to this stop mm. the clock thesis, but it seems to me it has two major ramifications. One reason I think why is there are so many 
people resigned, you know, even on the on the on the Remain side, so there'd be an inevitability, quote unquote, of Brexit if they feel that it's, it's a done deal now, the clock is ticking, we only have two years, and we have to have some kind of deal, whether it's soft, hard, or God knows what, on the one hand. And secondly, uh, even if the British uh, uh, public were to somehow change its mind in some shape or form, we frankly, to use a technical phrase, pissed off so, so much the rest of the European Union that even if we went back to them and said, Do you mind us having a rethink, they would say, No, because you, you've played. You've, you've, had, you've played these things very badly up until now. So I think going to the first point, though, therefore there is there is a real purpose of, of people uh, being more active and lobbying their, their MPs in the House of Commons to get this, this situation to, to occur, that some vote uh, and, and non-endorsement through the vote of uh, Theresa May's deal. Yes, absolutely. Look, it, 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 it is essential that people remember, and particularly MPs remember, that they have a solemn duty. They have a solemn duty to test what is put forward to them by the executive, by the government of the day, against what their constituents legitimately expect they will receive. And it's not as if, you know, Brexit wasn't just sold as a word, as a six-letter word. I'll take, I'll isolate one which I don't think has been given enough attention. One of the most resonant claims made by the Brexiteers is that it would give us full control. We would be able to take back control over our borders. Ironically enough, it is now obvious that we are going to create a new land border between the UK and the EU, which presently doesn't exist, in, in Ireland, mm. and then we're not going to control it. In fact, the government's making a virtue of the fact we're going to have a border and not control it. You know, there can be no more flagrant example of how the promises made in the referendum are now being breached in the delivery of them. And as someone, by the way, who uh, you know, famously, uh, notoriously, was unable to deliver one policy in one area and I wasn't even Prime Minister, uh, it's not unreasonable for people like me to expect that the Brexiteers should be held to account for these industrial-scale lies, which is what they are, that they made to the British people. Okay, well, before we move on to the, the current, your judgment based on your meetings with these various individuals about of the E27 towards the United Kingdom at the moment, it's negotiating behaviour, should we say. How optimistic are you, though, if this vote were to take place, say, in a year's time in the House of Commons, that we would get that kind of result? Well, obviously, I don't know. No one knows until a vote occurs. But a year is a long time. And crucially, if MPs were invited now to vote against the deal, they would quite understand. We said, well, we're not going to do that because we haven't yet yeah. given the government the time to do its homework. But come next October, no one will be able to criticise MPs who vote against it because MPs would say, look, we've let the government get on with its job. We recognise that it has a mandate to seek to take us out of the United Kingdom, out of the European Union, on the terms which were uh, promised by uh, the Brexiteers. We haven't stood in the way of that. We haven't frustrated the will of the people. But it is our job as representatives of our constituents now to test what is put before. I mean, otherwise, what's the point of the vote? Unless actually a, a judgment is, is made. And the judgment clearly needs to be made between the content of the deal and what was promised in the deal. Now, I think there are other arguments which play, and I think we'll come to assume a greater significance in the coming year. For Labour MPs, for instance, I think it will become increasingly obvious that it is simply impossible for a Labour government, and there is a, obviously a strong possibility um, uh, that there might be a Labour government in the, in the coming years, to, and this is the stated ambition of Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonald, to stop austerity unless you stop or pause Brexit. You, can't do, you cannot stop austerity and proceed with Brexit. They are mutually incompatible with each other. In fact, in, a, in an agonising twist of fate, proceeding with Brexit would almost certainly make austerity worse. Um, 
And so, uh, and so given the very profound effect on the public coffers that Brexit will have, almost any version of Brexit, even the softest version of Brexit, that is diametrically opposed to the, to the Labour Party's stated ambition, progressive stated ambition, of wanting to stop austerity. And I think that will become more obvious. And then for the Conservatives, well, again, I, I, it just depends whether there are sufficient numbers of Conservative MPs, when push comes to shove, who are prepared to do something which I think, and I've always felt, should happen a bit more in politics, is that people, crunch moments, should put country before party, and indeed country before their own careers. Uh, and I, and I, you know, privately, there are lots of Conservatives who, be, who believe that this kind of Brexit is not only profoundly un-British, it's profoundly unconservative as well, because what lies at the heart of the Brexit programme is, is the demolition of Margaret Thatcher's legacy in the, in the European Union, particularly the construction of the single market. So let's finish off then, Nick, with a brief overview of your, your, your sense of the EU27, both the member states, heads of, of major governments on the one hand, plus the institutional framework, the uh, especially Michel Barnier's task force. As, as we speak, you know, there's a, a current uh, narrative that the talks at the very least are not making much progress. There's been idle chatter about even a, some kind of breakdown in, in the talks. I think it, in the mood in this town, Brussels, is that the UK has mightily, as we say, in the vernacular pissed off uh, a lot of its so-called European friends and partners. Uh, so therefore, a lot hinges therefore on the receptivity of, of Macron and Merkel and Barnier and Juncker and Tusk and, and all the other uh, key European figures to, to agree to this stopping of the clock. How, again, how optimistic are you about that? Well, I believe that it would be both a predictable, inevitable, and totally rational decision if the United Kingdom itself were to develop doubts about going through with Brexit for the rest of the EU to give the United Kingdom and indeed the EU as a whole time to adapt to that. And so, it, you know. In many respects, time is a great healer, <laughs> yeah. and, and, and I think I think it, I think there will be a real instinct to just give everybody a bit of time. If if MPs had voted against the deal or were to vote against the deal next October, to give everybody time just to kind of cool down a bit, take a deep breath, and have the time and space to think about what's the most rational way to proceed. I, by the way, I'm not one of those people who believe that you can simply turn the clock back to the 22nd of June 2016. In many ways, I wish we could. But I don't think you could just simply snap back to you know, the status quo ante, you know, our, 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 our relationship uh, and our position in the EU, the UK's position in the EU, just as it was before. So I think we will need to, and needless to say, the EU itself, of course, is evolving and changing, as, 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 as we've seen in the very ambitious speech um, given recently by Macron. So the, the, the chessboard is going to shift a lot anyway. And there will be opportunities then, I think, and I, I expand on this in my book, for the United Kingdom to re reintegrate itself in the family of nations in the of, of the European Union, not in the inner core. There's clearly going to be greater integration within the inner core around the single currency, but also not uh, sort of hurtling out to sort of outer space. And I think there is an opportunity in the coming years for the United Kingdom to re-enter a sort of outer orbit, if I could put it like that, of 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 an outer tier of EU membership. By the way, other countries, not least the Visegrad countries in Central and Eastern Europe, are headed in that direction anyway. Um, so I think the orthodoxy in, in this town, in Brussels, that everybody has to march in lockstep to exactly the same <laughs> destination, I actually think that's dead anyway. Yeah. So I think the EU always was, but will become even more so, a much more flexible and elastic arrangement. And in those circumstances, with a bit of ingenuity, good luck, and crucially, the political leadership that we presently lack, I think there would be an opportunity for the United Kingdom to 
to, to reinsert itself into the EU, if on a different basis than the one which we've just left. Okay, we have to leave it there. How to Stop Brexit is out now. Nick Clegg, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you.